I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Hello, it's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with uh, Rhiannon Richards, who has just been appointed the editor of Radio Cymru, BBC Radio Cymru. I've known Rhiannon for uh, quite a number of years, and she's had a very interesting career. You're an Aberdeer girl originally, aren't you, Rhiannon? I am. Well, born in Cardiff initially, and then moved up to Aberdeer when I was around a year and a half, two years old. Lived, first of all, in Mountain Ash, and then in Comamon, the home of the Stereophonics, or the poet Alan Lewis, a very famous place, I like to say. Um, had a fantastic upbringing in the valleys and it's an area, the kind of valley is an area that's still really, really important to me, even though I now live in, in Pontypridd, but I'm a valleys girl through and through. Because your dad, Phil, is an interesting chap, isn't he? Because he's a retired judge. So, he is. Uh... He was a barrister, and then um, he eventually became a judge um, around about the year 2000, I think. Mum was a social worker, um, so I had an interesting, yeah, I had a very interesting upbringing. Where did you do your studies? I studied, first of all, um, I went to the Welsh school in Aberdeen and then went on to Reedvelen before um, studying in Aberystwyth University. I gained a scholarship in history to study in Aber. Graduated there, became president of the Students' Union for a year and then headed to Cardiff to study a postgraduate diploma in journalism. Ah, that's right, because when I first knew you, you were actually presenting a, a TV programme on, was it some strange channel or something, was it? Or was it, it may have been BBC Two, I don't know, but it was one of these daytime political programmes, wasn't Oh, it? Assembly Live, yes. That's I, it. Yes, I had great fun uh, presenting that programme, you know, because I was really fortunate, you know, I feel throughout my career I've been really fortunate to be able to have had great opportunities, and I was one of the first political reporters for the BBC in the National Assembly when it opened in 1999. Gosh, what was I, 26, 27 at the time? You know, a young, really enthusiastic reporter with a keen interest in news, current affairs and politics. And to have that opportunity to be at the beginning of something new like that was quite something. What did you find, what did you find about the politicians and their approach towards the media at that time. I mean, we're, uh, I've always found that what you've usually got is quite a small number of politicians who are very engaged with the media, and the majority are probably quite, um, not exactly sceptical, but are slightly uh, unsure of themselves when dealing with the media. Well, I think it's quite interesting because at that time, you know, you had a whole cohort of politicians, many of whom had not been exposed to journalists before. It was all very new. And if we remember back in that time, you had the lobby in the National Assembly, which consisted not only of BBC ITV and Golog and Western Mail, but you also had journalists there from the Daily Post, the Evening Post, the South Wales Argus, and even the Mirror. You had interest from journalists across the UK, people coming down from London on a regular basis. You know, a really strong cohort of journalists asking difficult questions at a time when everything was new for everybody, including the politicians. But it was a really exciting time to be a reporter. And I think one of the things that's 
saddened me over the last 20 years actually is how that lobby has dwindled in the National Assembly that you know there used to be a time when press conferences held by government or by the political parties were all full of journalists and now you know you have perhaps you can count them on one hand um, very often and in the meantime the Assembly of course has grown in its powers it's grown in its influence so, you know, you've got a question, do the people of Wales always get to hear about the decisions that are made in their name when perhaps they're not getting that level of coverage, for example, in the in the London newspapers anymore? So it's, yeah, it's been an interesting journey. But as I say, I was really proud to be a part of that at the beginning. That's right. I remember once going to a political conference, it may have been Labour, it may have been Plaid, where uh, there was me, it was, I think it was when I was on Wales on Sunday, so it would be back in the very early years of the Assembly. And uh, I think there was an occasion when I went for a curry and there was me and 20 people from the BBC. <laughs> uh, not all of them journalists, some of them were, were technical people, but um, I mean the BBC has got uh, enormous resources, hasn't it? But the danger is that it becomes a very dominant force. And you do need to have a plurality of media, don't you? And uh, people are looking at ways of getting that. There are constant conferences being held about this sort of thing, aren't there, Rihanna? Do you know what? It's interesting when people talk about the Welsh economy and they talk about the public and private sector, they often say the public sector is too strong. Well, actually, no, the private sector isn't strong enough. And I would apply the same theory to broadcasters and journalists in Wales. It's not that the BBC is too strong, perhaps. It's that we haven't got enough plurality, that other organisations' presence isn't strong enough. And, you know, when you think about the BBC, people think about it as one outlet, but no, it has Radio Cymru, it has Radio Wales, it has online, it has Wales Today, it has Newyddion, Five Live, BBC Network. It is actually servicing a huge um, organisation, very many radio stations, uh, very many um, digital and online platforms. And, you know, each of those outlets wanting its own identity and being able to have its own journalism. And that's something that's really, really important. I think, but that doesn't mean I don't wish that we had more journalists and greater presence from the other media organisations as well, because I do. That's what makes for a healthy nation, a healthy democracy and a healthy journalism. So you were presenting your programmes and then suddenly an election took place in 2007. And of course, at that time, Labour lost a few seats. And uh, after quite a, a long period when it was very unclear uh, what the government was going to be. Uh, there was a coalition that was formed between Labour and Plaid Cymru. And uh, I think you got a tap on the shoulder, and uh, metaphorically speaking, and you ended up, as it were, some people would say, on the dark side, because what happened was you went and became a, a special advisor. Was, was that a big decision that you had to make, or was it an easy decision? Yeah, I think it's probably one of the biggest decisions of my life, if I'm being honest with you. Um, I was really happy in the BBC. You know, it's no secret, radio was a great passion of mine. I loved being a reporter, I loved presenting, um, and I loved some of the producing roles as well that I was doing. However, what happened was the creation of something new. I've already talked about how I enjoy new challenges. And, um, you know, the reason I took that decision 
decision was to embark on a new project and to have those new challenges, not because I wanted to leave the BBC, um, because I was very, very happy um, as a journalist. So, yeah, it, it was a really tough decision, but at the end of the day, I got new opportunities and, and I've always sought new challenges. And how did that job pan out? What did you find yourself immersed in? It was really interesting, um, you know, because it was everything from day-to-day policy decisions to looking at how decisions were communicated to developing legislation to working not only to try and keep the relationship between the partners within the coalition fairly smooth, but to keep the relationship between all parties fairly smooth to, you know, ensure that there was good communication internally, externally, and to ensure that the government at the time delivered according to what it said it would deliver, um, which is a, you know, it was a tremendous challenge. And how did you find your journalistic experience and expertise fed into that? Hugely so. You know, one of the things you have to do as a journalist is absorb lots of information and be able to analyse that information quickly and accurately and then to be able to communicate it at the other side. And you're doing that under a tremendous amount of pressure. You often have to take um, difficult, snap decisions. And, you know, that's true of government as well. It's really funny because people think of the civil service and government as quite a, a, you know, slow machinery, but actually the pace you work at um, when you're working at that level is tremendously fast and you know I think in that sense I felt fairly well equipped to be able to adapt and to be able to you know take a step back look at things objectively and be able to give fairly sound advice. Now sometimes people who don't uh, engage very much with the internal workings of politics I don't know too much about it look at things from the outside and see uh Uh, maybe debates taking place where uh, somebody from one party is having a go at somebody from the other party. But in fact, what you were involved with there was a collaboration between two parties that were working together to create a government, which is something that until quite recently, Britain hadn't been very much experienced at at all. Uh, So in a sense, Wales was... Um, trailblazing for what ultimately happened at Westminster. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you about what happened in Westminster, but um, how did you find the two parties working together? I mean, that was something new, and it's something different from the usual shouting match that people are exposed to in Prime Minister's questions, for example. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's something that happens right across Europe. You know, it's we're the ones that are different here in the UK that it doesn't happen so often, to be honest. It's, you know, coalitions are a norm elsewhere in Europe. But it does require a, a great deal of patience and um, it requires a great deal of thought and pre-planning. I think, you know, I, I was there and I had a job of work to do in order to ensure good communications between those partners. I think it helps when you go embark on any project that you've got clear goals. And I feel passionately about that in whatever job I'm doing. You know, you set clear goals, clear outcomes. You agree the parameters within which you're going to work from the outset. 
any relationship, whether it's in politics, whether it's in any walk of life, has got to be built on trust. Um, you know, you talk about a marriage. Marriages are, are thrive when they're when they're built on trust. And, you know, there has to be a great deal of honesty as well. And if you can make that happen, then you, you stand a good chance of making it work. And I guess I guess that's what I learned during that period. So the the politicians who were perhaps used to shouting at each other in the chamber sometimes um, managed to work together quite well? Throughout my political career, throughout throughout my last twenty years as a reporter, as a special advisor, you know, I've seen politicians work together well from all parties, not just two parties, from all parties. Like I say, when you've got a goal, when you've got clear outcomes, when you when you want to achieve something, and that's the benefit of being in government, is you can actually achieve something, then you can bring people to work together around shared aims, you know. I think, I actually think that most politicians go into politics because they want to make a difference. Now, we live in a really cynical world. We live, and that's hardly surprising, um, we live in what's called the post-truth era, we're told, you know, in a world when there's been lots of spin, um, where, there's, where there's fake news. But actually, you know, there are some really decent human beings and in politics from all parties who really just want to make a difference and to be honest it's not an easy life being a politician is not an easy life for most for those who care for those who work hard so if you're going to choose to go along those lines and go choose that career then you've you've really got to care now, all good things come to an end, and 2011 came along, there was another election, Plaid was out of government, and then you went even further into politics, in a sense, because you became the chief executive of Plaid Cymru. What did you see your task as at that time? Well, the task of the chief executive of Plaid Cymru is to take the um, national executive's strategy and strategic plan on board and to operate it in the way you run the organisation. So making sure it's financially sound, making sure that the staff are working in order to achieve achieve the aims that are set um, and in order to make sure the organisation can achieve the goals it sets. Um, so it's the same as the CEO of any organisation. You know, again, you do need clear goals and you try your best to put processes in place in order to achieve them. Now, in contrast to what you were saying just now about the consensual way in which politicians can sometimes act together, my observation is that uh, very often it's the case that within political parties, people hate each other more than they <laughs> hate their opponents. Um, and I guess that as chief executive, you had your moments in terms of having to um, try to bring people together. I hope that if... If I do anything anyway, that's pretty much what I'm about, is trying to bring people together to achieve things, you know? Um, you know, any organisation is like a family, whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's anywhere else, and sometimes families fall out. Um, but like I say, what helps is when you've got clear goals, when you when you know what you're trying to achieve. And when, when you're in a position of leadership, as I was as chief executive, you've got to try and get people to believe 
in what you're trying to achieve and turn things round. You know, it's no secret that one of the big challenges I faced in that organisation to begin with was the financial situation of the organisation and, you know, having to turn that round. And yes, we did, um, you know, within within the first two years and put it on a sustainable footing for the future. So, you know, if, if you can persuade people, if you can take people with you to achieve goals, then regardless where you are, it stands you in good stead, I think. And then subsequently, you went to work for the presiding officer. I did. Ellen Jones. Now, you'd obviously known Ellen for many years. And uh, I uh, I mean, I have no reason to doubt that you worked extremely well together. I'm sure that you did. What do you think Ellen has been trying to achieve in her role as presiding officer? She's been uh, a hugely ambitious presiding officer. She said from the outset that she wanted to take on that role and be able to achieve something, not just sit pretty in the, in the seat of the Speaker of, of the National Assembly. And, you know, in 2017, the Wales Act came into being. And when that happened, um, the National Assembly gained the powers to be able to look at reforming its the way it's constituted and to reform its elections. So, Ellen Jones's big project was to look at, and with the support of the Assembly Commission, so this is a cross-party thing, it was not a party political thing, it was with uh, cross-party support, um, was to look at whether the name of the National Assembly for Wales should be changed to um, Sineth Cymru, Welsh Parliament, to look at whether the voting age should be lowered, uh, to look at whether the size of the National Assembly should be increased from 60 because of the concern about a, a lack of capacity, particularly among um, backbenchers. And, you know, we've got people sitting on two, three, four committees in the National Assembly, which doesn't happen in legislatures elsewhere. And then to look, in, if you, you know, if you're going to increase the size of the National Assembly, you then to think about how you're going to elect those additional members. Top of that, of course, there's Brexit, <laughs> um, which is dominating everything, everywhere. And, you know, there have been various other issues since. So it was a busy agenda. She needed somebody to come in to help coordinate, to help um, focus their efforts on that, and to be able to talk talk and work with all the political parties and that's been that's been my great pleasure and privilege over the last year and a half is to build new relationships with all the political parties and to work with them to to look at what their aspirations are in terms of the future of the National Assembly and to be able to start bringing together a plan for going forward and yeah I've I've really enjoyed that work. Because, um, again, people who perhaps don't take an enormous amount of interest might just think that the presiding officer is the person who sits at the top table and just acts as some sort of referee. But there's a hell of a lot more to it than that, isn't there? As has been evidenced from, well, when David Ellis Thomas was the presiding officer, I think he went in with a very clear agenda about what he wanted to achieve to, uh, in terms of making sure that Welsh democracy flourished and moved on. And uh, and that has actually been the, the, the role as it's been laid down and as Ellen Jones is now um, pursuing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think given the increase in powers, as I say, through the 2017 Wales Act, you know, that has provided a new focus. I mean, we're, we're coming up, can you believe it? We're coming up to 20 years of the National Assembly in May. Um, you know, it's an opportunity to look at the future, look at what sort of the National Assembly, future generations 
want to have and and that's what the program has been about and and it's all political parties and none that have been engaged in that discussion lots of organizations externally as well engaged in the debate about you know the sort of democracy and the people of wales want so it's, it's a really interesting time and of course i must mention the youth parliament um which is coming into being very soon the elections are being held at the end of november um and you know that has been an exciting development to work on as well now, very often, when people leave journalism, they leave it for good and uh, have to bid them uh, goodbye, adieu, etc. But now, uh, what's happened, and uh, you've just started this new role as editor of Radio Cymru, it of course will encompass a lot more than journalism, but uh, nevertheless, uh, you're back in the field uh, where you started, in a sense, uh, Rianev. You must feel pretty pleased about that I guess do you did you think at the time when you took that job in government back in 2007 did you think that's the end of my journalistic career well, I held on to my NUJ card for a very long time afterwards I can tell you that but it's were you saying for, you'd held on to it for a very long time does that suggest that you haven't got it now maybe I need to renew it <laughs> uh, I'll sign you up okay okay right. um, but you know it is a huge privilege to take on this role. I understand why you ask the question, though I certainly do. And, you know, there are a few things I will say in response to that. You know, first of all, as I said, it's been a few years now since I left my role with Ply Cymru. Over recent years, I have worked with all parties and none, you know, and I've had to build relationships. I've had to build trust. And during that time, I've been really glad, actually, to have had political parties share with me their deepest secret aspirations for the future assembly and been able to trust me in that role. So I hope I've been able to prove that I can build bridges then in that sense. But also in terms of moving from the political world to journalism, journalism to the political world, I won't be the first and I certainly won't be the last to move between those two worlds, either within the BBC or in the broadcasting industry as a whole. But I can tell you this, that as a former political reporter for the BBC, as a former presenter, as a former deputy editor, I know how important it is for the integrity and the authority of Radio Cymru and the digital services that I'm also responsible for, that I am impartial, that the services are impartial. And I will do everything, not only to respect that, but to uphold that. Because at the time when your appointment was announced, we, together with, I imagine, other people, um, had people tweeting to us and sending emails in a rather, perhaps, snide kind of way, suggesting that as a former chief executive of Plaid Cymru, you couldn't possibly uh, be an impartial BBC journalist. Actually, we took the view, and I'm quite happy to say this, that... Um, that would have been a slur on your professional integrity to suggest that that was the case because you're clearly somebody who knows uh, exactly uh, what um, ethics you're supposed to subscribe to. So um, there would have to be some pretty good evidence to suggest that you were manifesting um, traits of bias before we would look at uh, doing such a story. But do, do, there, there is this element, isn't there? And not just in relation to this, but also there is there is this element... I think it's largely to do with social media, where people are willing to try to pull people down, uh, sometimes on a very unfair basis. 
do you know what? I'm a glass half full kind of girl and I don't take too much notice of um, people who want to engage in that sort of thing. However, what I'd say to anybody, anybody who has concerns, anybody who wants to criticise is judge me by my actions. You know, judge me on my record, record as editor of Radio Cymru. I've never engaged in tribal politics. I've never engaged in the tit for tat and the yabooism that you see, you know, in some parts. Um, so I hope that they will feel assured and rest assured when I've had a chance to settle into my role. And I, I am really proud to be in this role, as I say. And as I say, I will, I will do my utmost to ensure that Raja Cymru um, remains an impartial service. Now, if you look at the listening figures for Radio Cymru, you'll see that um, I think they've, they've dipped very slightly, but nothing uh, perhaps outrageously uh, in, the, in the last year. But if you look at the number of people who listen to Radio Cymru on a weekly basis, it's quite a lot less than the number of Welsh speakers that there are. So how do you see yourself trying to make some impact in terms of uh, going some distance towards bridging that gap between the number of people who could be listening to it and the number who actually are. Yeah, the radar figures for Radio Cymru are really interesting, you know, in that, yes, this quarter compared to this time last year, down slightly, compared to the last quarter, we're at 7,000 um, listeners. But, you know, we all know that um, those figures don't tell us the whole picture, because what we now understand is that people are listening and they're accessing um, Radio Cymru and other radio stations in all sorts of different ways, whether it's through their mobile phones, online, DAB, um, through their televisions and so forth. And actually, and you know, I need to pay tribute to um, my predecessor, Besson Powers, in this respect, that percentage share of listeners that Radio Cymru has actually is the same as it was five years ago, which, let's be honest, in the new competitive media environment we work in is quite remarkable. You know, you know, it's not it's not the same for for all radio stations. So she can be proud of that. Do we rest on our laurels? Of course we don't, you know, and my vision, my ambition is to reach out to new audiences and if I'm being honest, Martin, to reach out to younger audiences as well, whilst maintaining and keeping that real loyal um, following that we already have. And they are very, very loyal indeed. So so that's the ambition. When you think about it, you know, 119,000 people, so the figures say, are listening to Raja Cymru every week. Our digital online services have grown from just 10, I think over 10,000 five years ago when they launched to 50,000 now. We have an opportunity as well through Radio Cymru Die, because we now have two radio stations in Welsh, um, to be able to reach out to new listeners, to younger listeners, to new audiences, to people perhaps like me who come from non-Welsh speaking backgrounds. You know, I think I'm one of the first editors to come from um, a non-Welsh speaking background um, where there are many learners in my family to reach out to people like that and say, hey, we've got something to offer to you. We've got something really exciting on offer. You know, we've got a huge amount of talent on Radio Cymru. Um, I think of people like Hugh Stevens, you know, um, the DJ, Tiddy Rowan, one of Wales's great comics, um, all sorts of people who are offering fresh new new original content and I hope to spread the word about 
both radio services and our digital services as well. You mentioned earlier that in general terms you're a great fan of radio as a medium, uh, as in fact am I, because of course it does give the opportunity to explore things in greater depth. Um, sometimes TV can be... Um, I hate to use the term dumbing down, but sometimes it can be a superficial medium and very often news judgments are made about what stories to put on based on the pictures that exist rather than on the content. So one thing I know that people are very concerned about in media generally is the fact that um, attention span for people seems to be reducing and that as a consequence of all the social media stuff that people are exposed to, many people do not seem to have the ability, and this applies particularly to younger people, to actually listen to a sustained programme. Uh, and uh, I mean, I know in my own organisation, the aspiration, for example, is in terms of a particular story to hold people's attention for 60 seconds. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, that's by no means uh, restricted to my particular organisation. What do you think can be done, and this is a huge question, to combat that sort of development in society? Do you know what? It's all about great content, though. You know, if you've got a great story, if you're telling that story really well, which I know you can do, Mr Shipton, um, you know that you can keep that audience with you. What I think is interesting is if you take my kids, my kids, they don't adhere to schedules anymore in radio and television. They have their entertainment, their news, their music when they want it. And at the time they want it, you know, they're streaming stuff, whether it's through the BBC iPlayer or YouTube or Netflix or whatever it is, um, you know, Spotify. And all of those things present a really new challenge to us working in the broadcast industry. I mean, the sector has changed so much since I left in 2007. But you're right, it does present new challenges. And I think what we've got to do is keep thinking about not only the content that we're producing and making sure that's exciting and relevant and new but also how we're getting to people and through which platforms so I listen to the radio mostly through my phone these days you know you've got to consider that podcasts huge huge industry now you're talking I think around six million people in the UK um, are listening to podcasts every single week like this one hope you get six million people listening to this one Martin um, but you know so that presents me as the editor of Roger Cymru and Cymru View with a real opportunity to think anew and afresh about the sort of way we can um, share information and share our entertainment with younger people. And I certainly want to look at how we can develop Welsh language podcasts going forward. We've already got a really popular one, actually, for Welsh learners, which is easy and simple for people to download and access. Um, shortly, we'll have um, a new podcast launched with Keris Matthews, looking back on Radio Cymru Music Sessions. So we've just got to keep it fresh and keep it interesting. And that's what I hope to do. Now, in terms of funding, uh, the BBC is constantly under stress, isn't it? And uh, uh, has to make a case every few years for the continuation of public funding through the licence fee. There are those who would like the licence fee to be scrapped. How would you make the case for a continuation of a public service broadcaster? I would say look at the wealth of services that are on offer. I just think even in the Welsh language, you know, um, I think 
the decision to invest actually in a new Welsh language radio station shows a huge amount of confidence, not only in the BBC and what it does on radio, but also in the Welsh language itself. You know, that it is the language of future generations, that it's live, that it's vibrant, you know. And in addition to that, in terms of the Welsh language, you know, we have great, make great programmes for S4C. There's also the very diverse content that's produced digitally we keep innovating we keep looking at what our audience wants and our audience needs and we keep producing great programs across a wealth of channels that's the message bbc keeps needing to remind its audiences of and understanding the challenge that it faces but i honestly think that we should be really proud actually that, that what we've got on offer is sort of always developing and always evolving and in terms of the welsh language offering of course you are up against this uh, huge uh, challenge where you have um, an Anglo-American culture that is all-pervasive, which is taking over culturally many parts of the world. How is it possible for a small nation like Wales with a minority language to um, hold back the flood, if you like? Do you know what? It's a really interesting question. Let me tell you how I became a Welsh speaker and how I kept my Welsh language. So, like I said to you, I, I grew up in a non-Welsh speaking household. I was the first person in my family to be a fluent Welsh speaker. When I was around 16, 17, I became interested in music. And we had a Welsh language band in our school. And they were doing a live session one week on Radio Cymru on a programme by somebody called Hugh Bobs Pritchard. And um, I remember listening to that programme for the first time and realising, my goodness, the Welsh language isn't actually something that just sits in the classroom. It's live. It's really vibrant. It's, it's exciting. And through that, started listening to that radio programme every single week, started going to Welsh language gigs, started meeting new friends from across Wales, many of whom were first language Welsh speakers, and realising gosh, this is quite exciting, you know, I belong to a really exciting young culture and I'm convinced to this day that listening to that music back then on Radio Cymru was part of me being a proud Welsh speaker now. So the offer we give to young people is really influential and really important and if we can keep doing that and keep finding your Hugh Bobs Pritchard type programmes um, which are going to attract people to our culture then that can only be a good thing. Thank you very much, Rhiannath Richards. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.